This episode is brought to you by Element, spelled L-M-N-T. What is Element? It's a delicious, sugar-free electrolyte drink mix. As a coach, we are constantly trying to find the best products for our athletes to train and compete at their highest level. Element is a great alternative to other commercial recovery and performance drinks and has enough sodium, potassium, and magnesium to get you feeling and performing your best. Plus, it has zero sugar, no artificial ingredients, and is gluten-free. With eight delicious flavors, you are guaranteed to find one your taste buds will love. I know our athletes love the citrus salt. We keep a variety box in the office, and our athletes stop by every day on their way to practice and games to load up. At this point, they won't even touch another product. With amazing products and sponsors like Element, our podcast would not be possible. Right now, when you click on our affiliate link and place your first Element order, Element will give us 100% commission. Element might have the best return policy on the planet. If you don't love it, you'll be instantly refunded. Our next partner has a product I use every day. I started taking Athletic Greens because I wanted a simple all-in-one solution as opposed to the ever-changing variety of supplements I have been taking for as long as I can remember. Sometimes up to three ramekins a day full of pills and powders trying to find the right formula for peak performance. Now that I've been taking Athletic Greens for a few months, I love it and I will never go back. With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food, sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. I take one scoop in the morning on an empty stomach and an additional one in the evening when I'm feeling run down. I've seen such a difference in my own performance that I recently ordered additional AG1 for the rest of my family to use. It costs you less than $3 a day, you're investing in your health, and it's cheaper than your cold brew habit, and supports better sleep quality and recovery, in addition to mental clarity and alertness. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash contacts. Again, this is athleticgreens.com slash contacts to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Welcome to the Contacts Coaching Podcast, dedicated to bringing you practical ideas from coaches, sharing what they have learned throughout their career. The show is designed to serve as a digital database of mentorship from a wide network of coaches whose innovative, reflective, and diverse knowledge may offer ideas to enhance your experience. In addition to sport-specific expertise, each episode also dives into the ways in which culture, strategy, and tactics can cross from one discipline to another. I'm your host, Justin Klein. Welcome back to the Contacts Coaching Podcast. We are joined today by my mentor and legendary coach in the basketball community, Bob Williams, formerly of UC Davis and UC Santa Barbara, now retired and doing TV work and NCAA committee work. Coach, thanks for joining us today. Good to be here, Mo. I'm glad you finally got far enough along on that Rolodex of yours. As we said, I've been waiting for the perfect time to have enough content, so I'm actually good at this when I talk to you. So if you could humor us and take us through the journey, Coach, how did you get into this field, this profession? What were the steps along the way? How'd you go about getting your first job? And then if there's any stories along the way of how one led to another that would be informative and entertaining, I would love to hear those. Hey, every job is one to another. And I don't care where you start or how you go, but I coached at every level possible, starting with some junior high football, basketball, doing that. I coached assistant varsity coach at, my senior year in college when I no longer played for a guy named Dave Mercer, 
a legend out of San Lorenzo Valley and a legend that I grew up idolizing because he was one of the best players to ever come out of the greater Santa Cruz, Watsonville area, just a phenomenal athlete. And so I coached with him one year. And then the next year went down and got a job as the JV coach for our Santa Cruz legend, Pete Newell, who interesting enough says, you know, I have an opening if you'd like to apply. And so I said, sure. And he said, meet me at the catalyst. And he had a close to a four hour interview for me, diagram everything on a pad and pencil. What would you do with this? How would you attack that? Where would you stand when you're doing this? About four hours. Get done. And he goes, great. He goes, I should wrap these interviews up within the next two weeks and I'll let you know. <laughs> said, wow, this is big time. <laughs> Guy's got a lot of candidates. And I don't know. I'm 22 years old. He called me that night and offered me the JV job. And so I worked there with him and for him for the next two years probably learned as much basketball as any two years in my entire coaching career for two reasons. One, he's a very good teacher, but two, I knew nothing about the game of basketball and what it really takes to run a program or to teach and do that. You could think, Climo, if you had to pick on every drill you ever do, when I would hand my practice plans in to Pete Noel, he made me put an X where I would stand and the reason why. So you had to know what you were looking for and what was the best place to see that on the floor. So he really made me think about the game. I then got very fortunate and went and got to work for one of my mentors, Bob Bogowski at Cabrillo College for one year as his assistant, which led to getting an interview at Lincoln High School. And this is when I decided, okay, I must be pretty persistent in this thing because they had a varsity opening on a very good Lincoln high school job. They lost in the CCS semifinals the year before rich Friedman was the coach and he got the gambling job and was a very highly thought of high school coach in the San Jose area. So I call up Lincoln. Pete Newell tells me the Lincoln jobs open. So I call up Lincoln and the AD gets on the phone. He says, we've already got our candidates. We are interviewing them today. We're interviewing four candidates, and we feel pretty good about it. Appreciate you calling. I said, really? What time are you guys interviewing? He says, they're one-hour interviews, and we're interviewing from one to two, two to three, three to four, and four to five. And I said, okay. I said, I'll be in the lobby at five. If you guys are happy with your interviews, then so be it. But if you're not, I'll be ready for your next interview. That's and awesome. he kind of laughed, and I showed up and had the one-hour interview. And drove my white Volkswagen camper van over there. Went and got a sport coat from my boy, Max Reduzco, at, at Smiley's Clothing there in Aptos. And went to the interview. And fortunate enough, they called me that night and offered me the Lincoln job. So <laughs> that was my start into high school varsity coach. That so is I'm, one way to do it. <laughs> it is. Interviews. I will be there. <laughs> I was, I, I just, he, go, he shook his head, kind of like, wow. And when they got done, they obviously weren't necessarily sold on the other candidates or they were intrigued with who this very cocky, arrogant 24-year-old was. So I did that for one year, learned a whole bunch being the head coach for one year, had real ups and downs. And fortunate enough, after that one year, my mentor, Bob Bogowski, stepped away at Cabrillo College and they were going to hire an interim coach. And the reason I honestly believe they were hiring an interim coach is they knew that they could hire me in an interim position where they wouldn't be able to hire me on a full-time position. Yep. So my friend, the AD, Dale Murray, hires me at Cabrillo College. I was there three years and had, a, had an interview at the end of three years. We went my first year. We, were, we won one game in November. We were 0 for December. Oh, for January and won four games in February. So we got a little better. Uh, but my third year there, we finished second in the league and won like 22 games. And so made real improvement in three years. And the best, one of the best junior college jobs in the state of California at that time was Menlo College. And so from Cabrillo, I got a chance to interview for Menlo. 
and was fortunate enough to get the Menlo job. I was there for five years, and Menlo wanted to transition from junior college to D3, which was a really hard sale for me because in junior college, I had scholarships, mm. which was the benefit. Nobody, Very few people had scholarships, and I had eight of them. And I could break them up, but I had eight scholarships, which is a real plus. And I had dorms and a small little campus. And I loved the job. And then, yeah, okay, after five years, I'd had an interview at Utah and was off with the top assistant recruiting coordinator at the University of Utah. And I knew I wasn't ready for that. I didn't have any experience at that level. But a year later, I got offered the same thing at Pepperdine University, which was in Malibu on the beach. Much more appealing to me. I could wear my shorts and my hooded sweatshirt and fit right in. And so away I went to Pepperdine after five years at Menlo, two years at Pepperdine. The rest is riding your alley. UC Davis for eight and Santa Barbara for 19. Wow. So many things that I want to now dive into. And there's funny the connections now in hindsight that. I can see through with the Menlo connection and a number of people from your tree that have ended up there coaching and the coastal allure, obviously, right. As being a Santa Cruz coast guy and then Pepperdine and then back down to Santa Barbara. But uh, I want to go backwards to this deal at Lincoln first and foremost. And you said, I learned a lot. And I always ask, what is the first thing? If you can remember back, if not, you can just give a list of all the things, but what is something that you realized right away that you needed to figure out? And you were almost not over your head because you're pretty resourceful and going to figure it out. But what are these things that hit you in the face as a new coach that you're like, oh, my God, this is the new priority list? Yeah, there's no doubt that I was a 24-year-old coaching at a good high school with a couple of Division One level players that there's also this, the hanger-oners around those kids that you had to deal with even back then. I think I learned gradually over time, but this was one of the bigger lessons I have with it, that, that you need to find out different ways to touch different kids. So I had one of the kids was a big Indian kid who was very gifted, really talented, great hands, could score it. He was a 20 and 10 guy and there weren't a lot of those in high school. And so he was very good, but he didn't like to go to school. And I didn't have much room for that at 24 years old. And the AD and the principal called me in and they said, hey, we've got to find a way to make sure Weldon's eligible. And so with my infinite wisdom of a 24-year-old with a lot of answers, I said, it seems to me Weldon's got to find a way to make himself eligible. And I'm willing to live with that. And the AD and the principals look at me and they go, that's a good idea. Yeah, that's it. Because they didn't care. They didn't care if, if all of a sudden Weldon wasn't going to be eligible. And so by the next week, Weldon wasn't eligible. But it was because I booted him after giving him an ultimatum, you've got to go to class. And I drive into school and he's sitting out in the field with his girlfriend, <laughs> hugging it up with his dolly. And, and so I took Weldon's gear away and Weldon was off the team. I took a team that should have contended for a league championship with Willow Glenn, who lost in the CCS semifinals that year. Really good team. Bob Burton was the coach. And so I took a team that should have contended with them. And I rose all the way up to the level of maybe fourth or fifth in league. So I learned gradually over time, learned some lesson about there's got to be better ways to discipline players without hurting your entire team. And that, that was a great experience. I learned about doctors at that time and that you've got to get involved with your players if they're going to seek medical care. We had a young player on the team, Jeremy Lynn, whose family didn't believe in Western medicine. Mm. And he banged up a hand pretty good. And so he came in with the hand wrapped up in cellophane with herbs and a Vaseline-based ointment on it. And the guy said, you have to leave this on for a month and then we'll reassess it and see how it is. And I said, did he x-ray it? He goes, no. Did he do anything? He goes, no. Coach, this is my family. This is what they believe in. So I had to take him over to an athletic trainer and get it tested out. 
and found a different way to get him an x-ray without the family knowing and all that stuff <laughs> to gradually feel safe enough to push the kid that it wasn't broken. Yeah. But I learned all kinds of stuff about the academia, mm-hmm. dealing with other sports, being a young. When I was 24, Climo, I realistically looked about 18. And so when the football team came wandering through our gym with dirty cleats on, football was king at Lincoln. I blew my top, made them go back out, and I locked the door from then on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I go out after school about a week later, get in my van, start it up, drive not even out of the place, and there'd been a whole bunch of sugar dumped in my gas tank. Oh, oh no! <laughs> so the football players showed me that you're as vulnerable as the rest of us. And so I just learned all kinds of lessons about dealing with other kids, other players, other teams, and really enjoyed my experience, but was also really thankful that it lasted one year. Yeah, no doubt. That's awesome. Okay. Transitioning from that, I want to go back to what you said about Coach Newell. And you mentioned that he wanted to know where you were going to stand and why. And I think that is something that people would benefit from hearing the philosophy behind that and what you're able to impart now after your career and experience on why that's such a significant question. Because even being around you for as long as I was, we never had a conversation about that. And I figured it out later on in my own career, like how you place yourself in certain areas and how you distribute your assistance is something that should be very intentional rather than just it happening. So I'd love to hear about that and how then you took that and applied it throughout your career. What advice you would have for other coaches on that? I think it's great to do with a young coach because it makes you develop a rationale as to why you do things and where you are. That You're not intimidated then by having to explain it. Whether you know it or not, when you were with me and Fogel was with me and Wheels and even Bob Hawking, and Bob Hawking hated it, but whenever anybody wanted to put in something new, I would say, explain it to me. And while Hawk goes, you know what that is. I said, it doesn't matter if I know what it is. I want to hear you explain it to me. And if I don't like the way you explain it or I have questions afterwards, then that's going to affect, I believe, how the players look at it. Because I want to be on the same page with anybody that explains anything to my players. And so when you have to go through rationale in your mind, I'm standing here so I could see this. What you've really done is put a priority on that. So less is more. If you're doing a blockout rebounding drill, so many times you're going to be tempted to do blockout, rebounding, secure it, outlet dribble, and give it to the outlet man. Let's take the drill one step further. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what happens is you dilute what your number one priority was. Mm-hmm. And your number one priority in this situation should have been are we blocking out or is my priority we're going to get the rebound because you have two different types of players watch the miami heat if you don't think there's two different types of players no doubt so they do a phenomenal job of blocking out and bam does a great job and butler does a great job of going and getting it right okay so you have guys that need more focus one way or another so what it really taught we was to prioritize what i was looking for in a drill and then Keep your focus on what your priority is. Mm -hmm. And you might want to do another two or three things with that drill, but don't stop the drill every two seconds because the second or third thing isn't right. Make sure you keep your priority and your teaching on what the first thing that is your priority of that drill. Yes. And I think the other thing that comes from that, right, is where are you standing and what are you looking at and how do you challenge yourself to change perspective to see if what you're seeing is the same from any different place, right? And what is the angles and how you then can articulate to your kids, hey, here's why I'm emphasizing this. Because when this happens, you're missing it if you're only standing over here. Yeah, there's no doubt. And the other element, you have to understand that you see everything different. And you should be seeing it in 3D where they're seeing black and white. Correct. And if you don't as a coach, then you haven't been around it long enough or you're not there long enough. And so your ability to focus on one element 
but then see five or six things is crucial, I believe, if you're going to recall and teach to a group as the game moves. Because yeah. you can't stop the game on every teaching point. There have been times, I don't know if I ever did it with you and folks and that, but there are times where I took whistles away from assistants <laughs> because they want to stop the game too much. Yep. And it is not a stop game. It is a playing game. It's not quite like soccer, but it's pretty similar. Yeah. And that it is a constant movement flow game. We don't get to be like football where we stop for 35 seconds and play for eight. It's not the way the game is. So on that, I have a follow-up question and a half, which is, one, how do you advise for people that do see it in 3D, sometimes 4D, and they're seeing things that are happening that their players are clearly not aware of yet, and them inserting themselves into the equation sometimes has a negative effect? How do you advise what the right striking the balance of coaching, allowing things to evolve, and in regards to that, we'll go with that. Like, how do you strike that balance? Where I'm seeing something happen four plays, de- four plays down the road and they're still like passing the basketball. Yeah. Depends on the level you're coaching at. That's the first thing. But one of the great statements ever is kiss. Mm-hmm. It's simple, stupid. And the simpler you keep it, the better you'll be able to teach it. The more the players will relate to it. And you can make your point and move on. When it's time for the next point that you were going to make in your 3D or your 4D vision, okay, make that point by itself. Don't make that point with your first emphasis that you're trying to teach. If I'm teaching blocking out and then I'm on you because as you start pushing the ball up the floor after an outlet pass and your vision wasn't good, Guess what? I've just taken the drill from being a blockout drill to something else. And you don't want to do that. You want to have other elements to a drill, but you still want to have your focus. Much like you go into a game, Mo, and you want to have your three or four key points mm-hmm. that you have to do well. Okay? Yeah, there's 20 things that you know you have to do well. But if you got four key points and you go into halftime and you aren't living up to two of those four, you better spend your time on the two two of the four key points you're not doing well when you get into halftime, because that's where your focus needs to be. Can you talk a little bit about the evolution of your approach? And while the soft skill piece is different, we'll talk about that later, but even the tactical piece. So when I was with you, there was, there were very specific things that we were doing on a regular basis. And as You finished up at Santa Barbara. You had moved much more to, let's call it a flow type of approach. What was the impetus for that? And what were the things that you had to be aware of as you were making that shift? So that people that are maybe in that transition of, hey, I've always done things this way, but now I want to go over here. And there's that fear and that worry about the mastery piece. Can you talk a little bit about your approach and then how you overcame some of those things along the way? Yeah, you know, I got hooked into many different systems early in my coaching career. There was a time where I ran flex. There was a time where I ran UCLA high post. There was a time where with Pete that I ran reverse action. So I'd run wide variety of things. Bob Burton and I got into several things at the same time. Burton got me into the Chabot wheel or the wheel. And it was a dynamic offense for a junior college team. Two years, you get in, you get out that but all of a sudden I felt like all they relied on was this offense to get them a bucket and they weren't learning how to create anything on their own or get shots on their own or when to break it so one of the things offensively that evolved when you were with me we were actually pretty big in analytics at Davis and so we were really on the plus minus charts and combinations of players that played well together yes so now evolution of that was I went to charting everything we ran, every play we ran, every time we scored out of the play, every time we broke the play. Then we went to individuals when they broke the play. What was their percentage of good versus bad? If you broke it and you got a great shot, we marked it as good. If you broke it and we got a turnover, a bad shot, it broke down the up, we marked it as bad. So we broke it down 
to the to as advanced as we could without a lot of modern day analytic tools. And what we found is that some players were more efficient when they broke offense than we were if they stayed in the offense or we stayed in the offense. Other players would break the offense and their efficiency rating went way down. So those were tools that I would use to give players more freedom or less freedom. And then it became, as my evolution went, okay, how do I expedite getting players to positions where they're most effective Mm -hmm. with the ball and the freedom that either they need or structure that Mm -hmm. other players need? Example would be Orlando Johnson. Mm -hmm. You have an NBA player on your team. He was unbelievable in the Jordan side post, but you had to have the right players on the floor around him. If you had him in with two non-shooters on the perimeter and our two bigs, they could double him. We had no one to kick it to. He became ineffective. But if you had him in with, let's say, one big and James Nunley at a four and then Boswell and one of our other shooters, oh, my God, they couldn't guard him. They could mm-hmm. not guard him. So it was, why do I want to run all of my false motion just to get to that? Or do I want to come up with one cutoff of a speed game, put him in the position that I want him, get in the ball, and let's play? Now, by the time he got to making decisions, we still had 20, 18 seconds on the clock. So he didn't have to force up a shot. He could make the right decision. If he didn't get it, now the structure that you wanted off of the pass out came into play. So we evolved to where we felt we were free with players that had great decision-making instincts, Mm -hmm. and we were more structured with the other players on the team as to when it went to them. We just got to it quicker and had to find ways to do that as we evolved in coaching. Yeah, and as part of that, Role definition, which I think I learned from you first and foremost, and how important that is in creating boundaries for players so that they can excel. How do you then articulate to that to your group, which is, look, OJ is going to be able to do X, Y, and Z. This is your role over here. What have you found to be most successful in outlining those so that you not only get to what you're trying to get, you have success, but the kids are buying into what it is you're asking them to do? Numbers, all the numbers that you're keeping track of, all the things I just explained to you, like example was this, Orlando, and these numbers will be rough, but they're ballpark of what it was. When Orlando broke offense, we scored at a 60% clip as a team. It was phenomenal. I had to encourage him to break offense more often. We needed him. So then it became incumbent upon me to put him in position to get him that ball earlier, let him break the offense earlier, but give him more time to operate if it didn't work. So there wasn't even that that 40% negative. If he didn't have something that was dynamite, he could get it to other guys and they get a ball. <clears throat> so the way you convince people was showing them all the numbers. Hey, son, I'd let you break the offense, but we as a team right now score at a 44% clip. Okay? That's 44% of the time we have the ball, we get a bucket. All right. When you break offense and go on your own, we're at 28%. That's 16%. That's the difference between last place and first place in this league. Now, if you have interest in being last place in this league, you should not be on this team. If you have interest in being in first place on this league, I can coach you and we can have success. And if you can't buy into that, then you were delusional. Now, I to surrender to that, I almost always gave them all of November to work on all the stuff that they had been working on the entire off season. My pull-up jumper, my three, my left-handed hook, all the stuff you've been working on. So I give you the whole first month of the season and there'd probably be about six games. And then the numbers were broke down then. Then we go through December and compare the numbers at the end of December to the end of November. And then why we always got better in January and February was we were no longer negotiating in January and February. We were 
we'd got through the negotiation and now we were into a contract and we had to perform up to what we had set our standards. No, I love that. Now, even the language, we were no longer negotiating. That's awesome. All right. I want to pivot here and go back into the story and the journey and the people that you were able to be around early. And then I don't want to say more importantly, but I think more relevant because people sometimes tend to stop trying to learn, but the people you started surrounding yourself with late to continue to grow as a coach and to, and to cover your blind spots and those types of things. So if you could like just give a few nuggets of what you were able to steal early on from the people you were with. You already talked about Coach Newell, and clearly you didn't start wearing Birkenstocks around when you were coaching like him, but some of the other things that you learned along the journey. And then once you got established, obviously, at Davis and then at Santa Barbara, like who was in that personal board of directors that you still leaned on and why and how did that work and what were you able to grow from? Yeah, I didn't have a real large group. In fact, I had a tendency when the season started to want to shut to shut that group down to almost nothing and felt that it was really important that the staff and I figure it out. Now, to make that work, I got more and more open to my staff's communication versus, say, my Davis time where I almost had to shut it out when we were going through tumultuous years at Davis. The one year that I could have walked away from basketball after my fourth year. And I had to not only fight the team, I had to fight the staff because you had so many different philosophies trying to fit into a team that didn't buy in that all a couple of those kids need is any nugget to grab onto of an assistant making a look of any of that. And so I had to crank the pressure down on everybody and then make demands out of everybody in the off season. And the great thing was, is that then I got a Danny Yoshikawa. Then I've got the Kevin Vasquez, Foss, all the guys that turned the program around were juniors or seniors. And we landed two more coaching type guys in Diedrich Taylor and Daryl Chambers, who were just different. They were different guys than what Davis had before. So they just had a toughness and a basketball savvy and a maturity about them that they go out and take care of business. So when I got into the season, I wasn't very open anymore to anything other than my staff. When it got to Santa Barbara, my staff and I would have two hour meetings every day, some days three, and we would go over everything. We brought in all the analytics we could. We bring in the film. We would brainstorm on everything different. And then I had the, the mentors along the way, which were still Pete Newell, still Bob Degowski, had Gary Colson, had these people to put input. But my problem was always this, and I've made sure I will never be that in any, anybody's life, is what a mentor is. A mentor is to help make Justin Climo better at what Justin Climo does. It's not to make Justin Climo better at what Bob Williams wants to do. It has nothing to do with it. So finding people to be true mentors was really difficult. One of the best was actually a younger coach than me. His name's Mike Dunlap, a legend, one of my closest friends. He was really good at just giving you a bullet point or two or 10 and then walking away from it because he had nothing attached to it. He had his own team to coach. And some of the bullet points people give you really stick and resonate with your team and your staff. And everything would then be put in front of our staff in a meeting and we would hash through it. So I became very insular within my staff once a season started because I thought clarity for me personally was when I was 100% in on something and not debating between five different ways to do something. And it didn't mean that we didn't evolve from year to year because we always did. We would change based on personnel. And it didn't mean we did not evolve from November to December to January because we always changed based on what was working. I wasn't going to stick with something that wasn't working. I would can it, take the blame myself and say, hey, this 
this doesn't work, we're on to the neck and blow right past it. I think that's obviously a ton of self-awareness in regards to what works for you and what you said about mentorship and helping someone become the best version of themselves rather than what we may think they need to be. And I think that is something that's not stated out loud enough. And I think that's a good guiding principle for people that find themselves in those relationships. When you said we evolved and we would change year to year and do certain things, I think that's something I picked up from you trying to figure out what's going to work in any particular situation. But I'm also curious, like, how would you describe your non-negotiables that never shifted, right? That's like what Coach Williams hung his hat on in the room in regards to this is the best thing that we do. And if I got a job tomorrow, we would be doing X, Y, and Z. I'm always curious about what those are, especially for young coaches as they're trying to figure it out. What what would you say those were and that allowed you to hang your hat on those things? Defensively, three things. You got to control penetration by the dribble or the pass because penetration breaks down your defense and kills you. Now, there's a variety of ways to control penetration, but you, that had to be one of your principles. We will control penetration. You had to contest shots. Now, there is no negotiable on that. You've got to be in position to contest shots, or I would have put you in a basic on whoever you're guarding, which meant you didn't need to contest their shot outside of 15 feet. Leave them open. Odds are they aren't going to make it. Get ready to rebound the ball. And the last thing was rebound. And it's why we were almost always undersized at every level I ever coached before the game went to three, four guards and one big, we were playing four perimeter players and one big at every level I coached at. And because partially not because of any visionary sight, because it was the best players we had, we put the four best players on with the toughest, most physical rebounder. When you're going to play small, it's five guys rebounding the ball. I would give up transition offense to have five guys rebound the ball because when you got it, you got a chance to score it. When they rebound it, break you down. You're defending two times in a row. It breaks you down at the core level. And so we would do hours upon hours of practice drills where you had to get stop, get a stop and get a rebound in order to get out. And if you didn't, you went again. If you didn't, you went again. And what you wanted them to know, you went again against a fresh opponent. There was a new four guys. You went against them and the other guy, you went, and then you went against another fresh opponent because you're getting more fatigued and they're going fresh. That's much like playing in a game. If you're giving up offensive rebounds and they're scoring on you, you're getting worn down. Yeah, You're getting beat up. And so we made practice as tough as we could on the art of rebounding the ball without being Calvin Sampson. <laughs> without being quite that toughness level where it was all about rebounding, we made rebounding priority and we, and I can't give you the number, but in 19 seasons at Santa Barbara, we were in the top two rebounding teams in league, like all but three of them. And we were never one of the bigger, more physical type teams in the league. Yeah. No, that'll do it, right? If those are your non-negotiables and your points of emphasis and going all the way back to when you were breaking down drill work earlier, keeping the main thing, the main thing yeah. that gives you clear direction and an identity and things that coach Williams teams has always been about. Well, on that, I can't tell you I've ever seen a good defensive team that didn't do those three things. And then offensively share the ball, get the ball to the hot hand and make sure that you know what your good shot is. Open shot your good shot is. So let's talk about that for a minute. And it doesn't have to be that long, but how did you end up defining that at the late stages of your career? Because that's something as coaches, we always struggle with. How do we make sure we get this dialed in? What were the finals where it's, yo, man, this is, I hacked it. This is what you do. We never reached it to where it was one with, because every player was a little different on right. how you got to them. We would use, we went through several years where we used the grading chart. Now, one of my toughest kids I ever had, Justin Joyner, came out of a game at Fullerton, played his butt off, hit six big shots, and Danny Yoshikawa was grading him because it's point guards. And when he graded them at a 1.5, and JJ was devastated. 
And he came into my office, shut the door, upset, can't believe it. And Yosha's thing was, hey, he made them, but they weren't great shots. But he made a great shot, but it wasn't a great shot for him. Okay. So finding that balance to keep a kid's confidence up versus destroy their confidence, but also get them to understand shot selection takes a long time in terms of watching film with them individually. Yeah. And I would rather have an average shooter being very confident than a good shooter second-guessing every shot he took. So I went to where I would give green lights to guys in areas. Mm. And so once you got a green light from me, you're never going to get ridiculed taking a shot with the exception of time and clock, score, scoring, scoring clock. So that helped a lot. So you had a green light, a yellow light, or a red light. Red light, you don't get to shoot much. If you got a layup, then that's a green light for you. Yeah. But red light, anything outside of 10 feet, son, you better be dribble handoffing and doing stuff like that because you're not shooting. Yeah. And if you had a green light on the perimeter, you got an open look, you better let it go. Yeah. Now, one kid I had really, maybe the most difficult I ever had, great shooter not good great but he wanted to pump fake and dribble all the time i've been there so we're running offense for a great shooter and he gets great shots and he's lip faking dribbling and guess what happens when he dribbles turnovers bad decisions gets in too deep can't get the shot up it's okay come sit down and watch the game for a couple games and understand that when i put you back in you're a shooter first you're a passer second you're a dribbler third, and they better happen in that order, son. I want a lot more shots, a lot of passes, and very few dribbles. <laughs> and that's just – that's how the game needs to be played with you. Yep. And, and then that's maybe a sophomore year. By his junior year, you hope they get to be better decision-making with that off-season work. Yeah, for sure. The, mo the one thing I think we were ahead of on my last year at Davis was our commitment of – a half hour a day out of two hour practice on nothing but skill development position wise, I think was ahead of its time. It was skill work in season. And I think our philosophy on that was if we can get 5% better in the season, then it's going to make all the difference. And it made all the difference with that group because they were highly skilled to start with. Yeah. But man, they got up. How many shots did those kids get up a day? How many ball handling, passing, all that stuff. And they were, in all my years of coaching, they were the best catch, pass, and shoot team I ever coached. And we probably spent a larger percentage of time, because we had such limited time at Davis to practice, probably spent a larger percentage of time on skill development than any other team. Yeah, no, and I've tried to actually incorporate that over the years from then. It's like, how do you stay in season and continue to develop because it's so transformational on the back end of that. And yeah, and it's hard to be one of your other principles if you think that's important. Yep, absolutely. All right, let me ask this. Now that you are doing more TV work, let's say, and you're around other teams, and I'm making an assumption, but when you're in the middle of the season, it's hard to go out and watch other teams. But now that you've had some time to do that, what have you learned watching other teams that – you think is, I don't know, not necessarily cutting edge, but it's ways in which you've grown even since you stopped coaching, just being not more immersed in the game, but looking at it from a different lens. Yeah, it's definitely a different lens. It's definitely not more immersed in the game than I was before. I'm very impressed with the modern coaches in the league I primarily watch, which is Big West. I think there's a lot of really good basketball coaches in there. I'm more convinced than ever that it's not the system. It's the person that's putting the system in and is able to convince the players that's the best way to play for them. I'm really impressed with the variety of offensive skills that the modern day athlete has that I think's evolved a great deal in the last 20 years. They're way more skilled than we were 20 years ago. They can do way more things doesn't mean that they should all be doing way more things, but they are capable of doing way more things. I think they're faster, stronger, jump better condition. 
all those things, the game has evolved in the training and all of that around it. But nothing's jumped out. Like if, if you go back to when I was at Davis and I look, or I can go back to Menlo. Probably the biggest coaching mismatches I were at, was ever in at Menlo College was when we went Division Three, and I went down and played Claremont, Pomona. Popovich was coaching at Pomona. A guy named David Wells was at Claremont. A, a legend was at Oxnard. All those guys, those were well-disciplined, system-oriented programs. We were a JC that was now going to play B3. And the amount I learned in one year of watching those systems play against raw athletes and tear us up was humbling and educational all at the same time. And just Dorothy wasn't in Kansas anymore. And I had to learn how to put in a more functioning system for a four-year athlete to progress rather than getting my JC kids ready to compete in two months and then ready for their final year the next year. And we would have a system, we'd have an offensive system, a defensive system, but it was nowhere near what the four-year Division three programs were put out. And I think people's system, you, it doesn't take you long watching people even warm up to know how much teaching is going on in those programs. It's a great example. And this was back when I'm at Santa Barbara. I went down and watched the Clippers in a playoff game when Blake was there and Chris Paul and those guys, and they were playing San Antonio. I watched San Antonio take advantage of the floor for an hour. I got down there really early, watched San Antonio take advantage of the floor for an hour, watch Clippers come out. I looked at the guy that had the box seats for us and the nice setup we had, and I said, this won't even be close. And he goes, you think, you think Clippers are that much better? I said, no. <laughs> You're looking at a system at San Antonio. They came out and went to work for an hour before the game. Clippers went out and went through the motions and shot a few jumpers and did a few things. But the system of preparation, and you go to the modern game, everybody's favorite player, Steph Curry, for us in the Bay Area, and you watch his system of preparing himself to play. Okay. There's no doubt that people that have the discipline to be part of a system and take the skills to the very highest level that they can in that system will end up being a more productive professional player. Yep. yep. And Miami's a great example of that now. Riley, Spolstra, the owner, allowing them to do their thing. Riley backing Spolstra when LeBron tried to get Spolstra fired. Okay, all that stuff, Riley backing him, saying, no, hey, there's no way. Yes. He's our guy. That empowers Spolstra to do things the right way. Mm -hmm. And that power is still there in terms of they go to work. Miami players come to work every day, and they operate like a professional business. Yep. Not every NBA team does that. Yeah. So why do you think with your – background and what you've observed and what you've been able to be part of and what you've been able to lead why do you think that those gaps still exist in the college basketball landscape the professional landscape how do we get to the point where that's not the price of admission you won't get to that point because certain programs put way more value on the star player, whether he buys into what the organization believes. And so many of the new owners, go back to the owners. So many of the owners don't know the first thing about the game. Correct. They have no appreciation for the scouting system. They have no appreciation for the weight room. They have no appreciation for all the skill development in the off season or having assistants that go around to the players and go to them and help them with workouts in the off season and doing all the things you have to do to get better. They don't have appreciation for the most cutting edge medical treatment to help players be healthy and avoid injury. So they're multi-billionaires who maybe think that, yeah, we'll operate the way I do because I own Hertz. And this is how I run, not, I run 10 times 
a hundred times bigger corporation than what this is. Great. And those people are renting cars out for you. That has nothing to do with developing talent. And you, you know nothing about developing talent. And you will see that in terms of comments they make, decisions they make. I think it's a pretty telling decision when Milwaukee fires their coach. Oh, guess what? There's a new owner that just bought in. Yeah, that's right. He's a brand new multi-billionaire owner who just bought in. And all of a sudden, Budenhoser doesn't know how to coach. Or one of the star players is ready for a new voice. Mm -hmm. I understand that. You're going to need new voices. Doc Rivers run out because a coach killer doesn't want to be coached that way. Hey, I'm really coachable. As long as everything you want me to do is what I want to do. So when star players are allowed to have that input, then those organizations will never change. Let's not blame Ja Morant for everything that's gone south there. That organization from coach to GM to president has allowed that to happen. No doubt. Having been able to take a few steps back and see the game through a different perspective and be able to see more teams than just your own, obviously. What are the things that if you were to start over way back when at 22, 23, when you're first cutting your teeth on this thing, what are some of the things that you would tell your yourself at that age that is yourself, but also you're teeing this up for this generation that's coming through? Yeah. Eliminate as many distractions out of your own personal life as you possibly can. If you want to be in coaching for a career, make sure that your collar match your cuffs. So that your philosophy lines up, what you want to be on the court, your philosophy will line up in your life, how you live it. I think those are important things for people that want to have integrity and want players to look at them in a certain light and think that they actually are living the life that they're preaching to their kids. That's pretty important. Stay on the move. Don't be content. Bob Gowski gave me a great conversation. First of all, he got on me when I was 27, 28, coaching at Cabrillo. He says, what's next for you? And I said, I don't know. I'm pretty happy here right now. God, we got we're starting to get better. I got good players coming back. And he said, yeah, and you've not accumulated one year towards retirement. You're mm. part-time. Yeah, you're right. And he says, Bob, there'll be good players everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. Don't get don't get too attached to your job or too attached to those players because it's going to limit what you do. And then the other advice was given to me, you're lucky you didn't get a high school job. Because I got, I didn't get the SoCal High School uh, teaching position when it came open when I was about 23, and I was devastated by it. But if I'd have got the SoCal High School teaching position, I'd have been making enough that I probably couldn't have afforded to take the Cabrillo job or the Menlo job or the Pepperdine job. And yet, when I was at Cabrillo and making 10 grand a year and living happy on that, it was great when I went to Menlo and made 22. When I was at Menlo making just over 30, it was phenomenal when I went to Pepperdine and made 40. And then the same thing, Pepperdine to David. All those jobs were phenomenal because they were an increase, but they were also moving up the coaching ladder. So sometimes you can make a job can limit you if you want to be a coach. Yeah. Okay. Because any level other than college, coaching is not your job. It's Mm -hmm. your passion. Okay. Teaching is your job. You said something there that I think is also super important. And again, I had the blessing to to be around you for five years and learn. And I remember at that time you talking about some of the, how do I say this? The financial components of what are you doing outside of your job? Like how are you preparing for retirement? How are you navigating these other things? Whereas like I was clueless at the time. And then when I got to high school, right? They sit you down and it's here. So you want to do like this separate 403B or whatever it happens to be. And I'm like, I'm in stirs. Like, what do I care? And then when I got here in 2010 and I'm meeting with one of my, my students' parents, who's a financial advisor. And I'm like, yo, can I meet with you? And I got, I should have started when I was around you and I started 10 years later, but can you speak a little bit to that for those that are young listening and how important that planning is, even though you feel like you're invincible and young and it's never going to matter? Yeah, you never think it's going to matter. But one of the things I'd put my players through when they graduated when I was at Santa Barbara was I'd put them through the power of saving, doing it. So my players that went and played professional, I would challenge them to see if they could put away $300,000 by the time they were 30 years old. And, well, coach, why I got to do that? I got to buy a car. I got to, I get all that. 
Put away three three hundred thousand, and then don't contribute another dime to it. By the time you're thirty eight years old, it's six hundred thousand. By the time you're forty six, it's a million two. By the time you're forty or fifty four, it's two point four. By the time you're sixty two years old, okay, it's six point eight million dollars. All right. So now let's say you waited till you were fifty. For every dollar you put in. You got to put in 15. So instead of 300,000 by the time you're 30, now you got to put in 4.5 million in your 50s. You better have a hell of an income if you're going to put $4.5 million away in your 50s in order to have the proper retirement access that you need. And so I had five years at Menlo and two years at Pepperdine put away. But then my Davis people and Jim Soaker helped me a great deal at saying, you take an extra 500 a month and put that away. You think you can't live without it, but you won't notice it. And they were right. You don't notice it. So you just always have to put money away when you're young or the younger stage so that you don't have to be putting a bunch of money away in your 50s and 60s. Yeah, no, that was for me super important. And what we've been able to do the last 13 years compared to the first 11 that I didn't piss off. I just thought I had it figured out is super important. I appreciate you sharing that. All right. One last thing, because we could be here all week, but what have you most recently changed your mind on? And it doesn't have to be basketball related, but it's one I always ask from the growth mindset piece. It's I used to be over here. Now I'm over here and here's why. And I'm always just curious what people, what evolutions they go through in life. Yeah, I probably have. I don't know that it's changed my mind on it, but it's come home to roost that you better have people around you that help motivate you at every stage of your life, whether it's a mentor, whether it's a partner, whether it's friends, because it's easy to not do much. It's easy to take the path of least resistance. It's easy as a coach to surrender your best player and let him take a bunch of bad shots and be hard on your worst player. That's really easy to do. Uh, it doesn't reap benefits for you, for them, for anybody in the long run. I, I think probably that you take, like when you were young, your parents would talk to you about who you surround yourself with. Okay, You were, I think, fortunate that your parents got you today. And then you were fortunate that for the most part, when you were at Davis, the kids we had in that program were... <laughs> unbelievable and so we were all surrounded by excellence in terms of who they were did they screw up yes were they goofballs absolutely did they all have they all gone on and you take a look at them and look how many of them that are happily married involved fathers solid if not independently wealthy and made great success out of their lives we were surrounded by greatness at that time that Davis didn't really have a lot to do with. We were just really lucky that those kids were in our program and we got to be part of that. Yeah. So we were surrounded by really good people. I was surrounded by really good people at Santa Barbara. I think making sure that you surround yourself with really good people. Yeah, no, and that's what the, the age old adage, right? You're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And that has hold, held true more than anything else, I think, in this world. And that's a great way to put a pin in this thing and uh, we'll come back later and do round two after we get some of this out in the universe mo i'm very proud of you you've done a heck of a job developing this format that you have and this platform and your branding as you're wearing the sweatshirt you got the whole thing there <laughs> it's just by the time we get back around to this mo i'm most likely going to be in a wheelchair Somebody would be pushing me around and wiping some food off my face because I'll be about 93 years old by the time we get back through the alphabet again. I love it. All right, coach. I appreciate you taking the time. I love you, Mo. Love you too. This podcast was also brought to you by teachhoops.com. As coaches, our inboxes will get flooded with noise on how to make your program better. Teachhoops.com will get you focused on what needs to get done. One thing you've heard from these podcasts is no matter the experience, you got to keep pushing yourself to be better. Coach Steve Collins will help you direct that noise. He is there to help you. He has the credentials as a coach, and he's never turned down a Teach Hoops member. Sign up for a plan at teachhoops.com 
and mention us at checkout. This site is here simply to help you be better. Take advantage and see you on the court. Remember, go to ttroops.com. This episode is brought to you by Element, spelled L-M-N-T. What is Element? It's a delicious sugar-free electrolyte drink mix. As a coach, we are constantly trying to find the best products for our athletes to train and compete at their highest level. Element is a great alternative to other commercial recovery and performance drinks and has enough sodium, potassium, and magnesium to get you feeling and performing your best. Plus, it has zero sugar, no artificial ingredients, and is gluten-free. With eight delicious flavors, you're guaranteed to find one your taste buds will love. I know our athletes love the citrus salt. We keep a variety box in the office and our athletes stop by every day on their way to practice and games to load up. At this point, they won't even touch another electrolyte product. Without amazing products and sponsors like Element, our podcast would not be possible. Right now, when you click on our affiliate link and place your first Element order, Element will give us 100% commission. Last thing, Element might have the best return policy on the planet. If you don't love it, you'll be instantly refunded.